of Hockey Podcast by the Fateful and for the Fateful. I'm David Staples of the Edmonton Journal, and I'm here tonight with Bruce McCurdy. Hey, Bruce. How's hey, David. How are you doing tonight? Ah, I don't know. I'm okay. I'm fighting off my fourth cold or whatever it is oh, of the winter. So, yeah. <clears throat> I'm a cold magnet. I'm as bad as Connor McDavid uh, in that regard. And not as good as him in any other. <laughs> All right. Um, 3-2 loss to the best team in the NHL, Bruce. A stifling checking effort by the Boston Bruins. Edmonton had just six grade-A shots. And only one of them was a five-alarm shot. Boston. guess which one that was. Yeah, we'll talk about that in a little <laughs> bit. Boston, on the other hand, had 11 grade-A shots at... <clears throat> Five, five alarm shots. They were clearly the better team. And absolutely, they did what the Oilers can't do. In the third period, Boston just shut down the Edmonton Oilers, except for, strangely enough, on a three-on-five penalty kill, which we'll talk about as well. This is our Two Good Things, Two Bad Things, and Two Numbers podcast. Bruce, what is your good thing? Yeah. Can I do a good thing and bad thing and just roll it all into one? Sure. That that would be well, I'm, I still want my bad thing later, but that would be Keen Costin <laughs> in this game. Uh, the uh, uh, Russian winger who finally got back into the lineup after, was it four or even five games? I think it was five games on the sidelines. He came up sick for the Rangers game, and then they called up Shore to replace him next game, and Shore played four games, and he got sent down just before the game, which meant Costin was good to go. And... Uh, uh, he went, and he was certainly one of the most noticeable lawyers in this game, and, and much of it was good, but uh, two or three critical instances was not good at all. And uh, one of them was uh, uh, early in the game when he uh, just completely failed to pick up his man, who was it, uh, Thomas Nosek, the dreaded Thomas Nosek. Well, even if you leave Thomas Nosek alone in front of the net, he might put it in like most of these NHL players. He, he might actually put it in, and he did. And Edmonton's only lead of the night was gone after uh, 13 seconds. 13 seconds they held the lead in this game. And there was a, you know, there was an issue there of a bad, uh, uh, like a double clearance from Nurse to DeHarnay and up the boards towards Pugliarvi where one of the new Boston guys that they just got in the trade, uh, Dmitry Orloff, stepped in front of it and worked <clears> it up <throat> the boards. Uh, he passed it behind the net to the other new guy that Boston just got, uh, Garnet Hathaway, who made a great deflection pass into the slot. And there's Klim Costin sort of sleeping five feet away from the dreaded Thomas Noshek, who takes advantage to tie the game at one-to-one. So not a good start at all, and you expect rust from these guys coming back from time off for whatever reason, and uh, I'm not sure he got on the ice a whole lot while he was sick. It's kind of hard to know. But he uh, he looked rusty, but boy, did he look energized as the game went along. And he was credited officially with three hits and no shots, uh, one assist, uh, with an even plus minus and six penalty minutes. That was uh, Costin's night. The first penalty was the <coughs> hook and call uh, three minutes after after uh, Edmonton got their one and only power play of the night. The refs 
uh, had to, you know, square that account. So they called one on cost. And anyway, they killed it off. And uh, it was a actually an exchange of penalties. So it was a four on three at the end. And they killed that off. And Costin came out of the box just as uh, Cece uh, fired one down. And Costin, uh, he was starting to come back into the play, but he just busted butt and he beat the Boston defenseman to the buck to negate the icing. And better still, he actually controlled and handled the puck and did what he wanted with it, which is something that didn't happen much for Oilers in this game. And what he wanted to do with it was uh, just make a short backhand pass to an on-rushing Connor McDavid who was coming on on a line change in the slot. And just like that, it was McDavid alone on uh, the uh, Boston goaltender, uh, Jeremy Swayman. And Swayman was pushing one way to uh, go with the pass, and McDavid just made the easy deek the other way and uh, deposited home. And it was, uh, uh, but it was all cost him that. It was the reason that that chance even happened. <clears throat> so uh, that was a big goal that tied it 2 2. And in between times, he was just crushing guys with hits. He hammered one guy along the uh, along the end wall. I'm trying to remember who the heck that guy was. Then he crushed um, uh, Hampus Lindholm right into the players' bench, the Oilers' players' bench. That was a kind of funny <clears throat> sequence where uh, where uh, Lindholm basically got bent over and and wound up in the laps of McDavid, Drysaddle, and Fogel on the Oilers' bench, where he did not receive a friendly welcome. But the collective GTFO shove from the Oilers bench back onto the ice. Uh, that was kind of a humorous moment. And then there was um, uh, the one in the third period where he took the big run at uh, David Krejci. And Krejci pulled up and, and uh, Costin missed him but hammered. Krejci's stick, which then bounced up and hit Krejci in the face. And the refs originally called a five-minute major on Costin with like five and a half minutes left, you know, or seven minutes left, and you're thinking game over. And then uh, they looked at the replay and correctly deduced that Costin never actually touched uh, Krejci at all. He just hit his stick really hard and got a bad bounce from Krejci's perspective. So they exonerated him and sent him back to the bench, only for Costin to then, unfortunately take and probably deserve a four-minute penalty with four and a half minutes to go in the game for a very careless uh, high stick. So this was the night of Klim Costin, just just terrible mistakes and uh, tremendous energy and a couple of real terrific plays. And and so I'm going to call him my good thing just because he was probably about the most noticeable lawyer out there for the time that he spent, which was... uh, Clean, where are you? Uh, eight minutes and 43 seconds. <laughs> His play on that first goal against Bruce oh, was God. one of the worst on a, 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 in a year where there's been no shortage of horrendous defensive decisions. Mm-hmm. I mean, he's going down the slot with that guy, and all of a sudden he peels off and lets him go in all on him, no sick, all on his own. That was just inexplicable. It was an inexplicable brain fart by Costin. And, well, what else can you say other than that? 
As for the crutch, he thought the puck was going behind the net when it was passed, and then uh, Hathaway made that really good deflection pass into the slot, and he just didn't <clears> see it coming. <throat> Maybe Since that's it. That. But he should have still stuck with the guy until he knew what, for sure what was coming. Yeah. Then Krejci. <laughs> Krejci, the, the worst moment for Krejci wasn't getting hit in the face with the stick. It's when the ref reverses the call and, says, and goes to center ice and announces to the whole stadium. Yeah, uh, David Critchie, no penalty there. Dumbass hit himself in the in the head with his stick. <laughs> that was Not embarrassing. Quite, but yeah, Critchie. that would that would be uh, the boss player hit himself in the face with his stick. Now, why would he do that? <laughs> that was really blunt and funny. <clears throat> All right, Bruce. My yeah. good thing is um, Connor McDavid, and this is the second game in a row where he's tried to will his team to victory been outstanding on the ice and just has come up short once against Columbus, the worst team in the league and now against Boston, the best team in the league. Um, he came blazing down the ice early in the game and fired in a shot, which for any other player, almost, almost any other, maybe Nate McKinnon and a few others wouldn't be a great a shot. But we know from watching Connor McDavid, when he comes down the wing that fast and shoots as hard as he does and as tricky as he does, those are great a shots. Those, are, those shots will go in more than 20% of the time. They'll go in, in at least 25% of the time. <clears throat> and he scored. He does it again and again and again. And and hardly anyone does that. I mean, you'd think players shooting from the dot, you know, I used to think way back when that players shooting from the dot, that's a great A shot, but it is not. NHL goalies stop that consistently. Um Taylor Hall, when he was with the Oilers, always was getting that kind of shot and hardly ever scored. But McDavid scores, uh, he scores regularly on it. You've already described, <coughs> excuse me, the cost, the 50th goal, his first 50-goal season. Um, for you. Beautiful, beautiful. And then perhaps the highlight of the game was the three-on-five at the end where he and Dreisaitl came so close twice to tying the game up. And that would have been so good. I mean, Boston had a three-on-five, so they might have scored right <laughs> anyway to get a, a lead again. But holy moly, that was exciting, Bruce. You know, <clears throat> once I think the pop puck to the puck popped to dry saddle in the order's end, and he quickly got at McDavid. McDavid rushed up the ice, and he was just going to feed dry saddle, probably for a goal, knowing how Leon can finish mm-hmm. it. Great back check by a Boston player. I uh, took that away. Patrice Bergeron, mm-hmm. the multi-multi-time uh, uh, Selkie Trophy <laughs> winner, showed his stuff a few times in this game. Man, what a fantastic player that guy is. He's just outstanding. And he was the guy. I mean, you could say he got caught on the play. And Boston, for whatever reason, had five forwards on the ice with a one-goal lead. And, and like that, I just don't understand. And oh. anyway, the forwards were among them David Krejci and Patrice Bergeron, who both made huge defensive plays on shots or would be shots that never made it through to the goalie. And that was Bergeron who came hustling back to get a stick into the lane and bust up that McDavid to dry sidle. I, I uh, think, Bruce, they have five forwards out there because the Boston coach just can't imagine what's going to happen with McDavid and dry on a three on five. He just doesn't know how quickly that can go bad. And he, well, he quickly found out. There. They broke out again. And um, I think it's Dreisaitl taking the puck up the ice. Make, 
drops it to McDavid, who puts it over to Nurse, and Nurse gets off a great shot, mm-hmm. which deflects off. Is it Krejci's stick? It doesn't. Um, Krejci's stick. It basically just, hit. Yeah. Just above the hosel of uh, Krejci's stick, so on the shaft of the stick, uh, and the. Uh, uh, I call it the hosel. That's a term from golf, which is the place where the the club and the and the and the shaft meet up. And uh, anyway, or the heel of the stick, some would say, but the hosel's above that. And it's a lot of puck luck to have a puck hit you there on a shot because that's a pretty narrow. That's like one of those shots that hits the you know the shaft of the goalie stick above the blocker where. You know, it could go anywhere to either side of it, and it just happened to hit it square on. Nurse did not miss that shot. I had a good hard look, slow motion, everything. That puck was labeled for the short side corner. Maybe Swayman stops it, but uh, all I can tell you for sure is that uh, that um, David Krejci did stop it. Boston was the better team, but this game was very close too. And the others, it was a good game until Boston kind of. Gave it the old Python hold in the third period. They they just didn't give up anything until that really until that um, three on five. And um, all right, Bruce, um, your you've already done your sneaky bad thing. What is your official bad thing? Yeah, I'm going to go with Kyler Yamamoto missing the target are being unable to get a shot away from prime scoring area, not once, but twice in this game. One really early in the first period. It may have already been one-to-one. I I don't have a timestamp on it. Uh, But he got a super pass across the goal mouth, and he was about four feet from the frickin' net. And somehow he fired high and, and or wide from right in tight to the net. And then there was another one where I thought he'd whiffed it, but this was uh, one time I will uh, uh, exonerate him because the great Patrice Bergeron came back to lift his stick just at the moment he was trying to one-time it. But then there was another one early in the third period where, again, Yamamoto had the chance from right in close and he just kind of whiffed on the shot. And he was able to recover it and cut back in front and get a shot. But... Uh, the second shot, you know, there was an actual goalie there. Whereas the first one, he had a, he had net to shoot at, and I mean, this is a guy who's got what five goals all year. Like, you're getting paid to be a goal scorer, man. You got to put the odd one in the net. You got to, you know, I'm just to get zero shots out of those two setups is just not acceptable. You know, hit the damn target, hit the puck, and hit the target with it. You know. Anyway, I'm sure he's uh, angry about it, but I'm not going to make excuses for him. He needs to score on one of those plays because Edmonton was having so much trouble to get great chances, and when they did get them, Connor Yamamoto missed them twice. Well, the puck is round. The ice is slippery. I, mm-hmm. I'm forgiving on the, those two plays. He did get a nice shot real quick shot on net um, right after he missed the shot in the third and he snapped that nice shot on net from in tight. But the goalie was there by then. <clears throat> the goalie was there. Yeah. You know, he's not Mike Bossy or David Pasternak. For, um, so, um, and uh, yeah, not, a, not great. I, I will. I'll Five goals. All <clears throat> year. 
We've all been ripping on Yesapuliarvi for his five goals and for his inability to convert around the net. Well, that's uh, not just his problem. Let's put it that way. Indeed. Bruce, the first goal against was really bad, and we've already ripped Clem Costin for that. The second goal against was was also a thing of badness. Um, <clears throat> Edmonton's rushing the puck up the ice. Um, Tyson Berry, uh, defensemen are allowed to do this. He wants he's going to go to the net, and he's in good position. He's ahead of Drysaddle on the play. Drysaddle's kind of lagging back a little bit, and so Tyson Berry rushes in. They cross the blue line. Tyson Berry goes to the net, and McDavid um, is going <clears> to <throat> deke the Boston defenseman and then put the puck to Berry. But as he's attempting that deke, he gets knocked off his stick. Um, offensive zone turnover at the blue line, which often leads to bad things, and this time it leads to a two-on-one rush against the Edmonton Oilers. And to his credit, um, well. First of all, Leon doesn't cover for Tyson Berry, so that's why it's a two-on-one. So Leon makes a, you know, <clears throat> it's he just should have been a little bit more aware um, that it's a three-on-two already, and, and he's got to be a bit more careful. That's a tough play, though, on a, on a certain level. But McDavid does come hustling back really hard, right up the middle of the ice, and then he realizes that the puck's passed over to the wing, and he heads over there. Unfortunately, Kulak is headed to the same player. Both McDavid and Kulak converge on the same player, whereas the player that was charging... The goal scorer? The 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 goal scorer, (laughs) Felino. Kulak lets him him by, and and I blame Kulak on this one. The player who was got the pass to, I can't remember who that was, who, who took that pass, he was not in a scoring position. He was just over the blue line. He wasn't in danger. The danger man is the guy charging to the net. And McDavid is also... You know, they didn't communicate. They didn't talk to each other. So, um, But McDavid was in good position, actually, to catch up to that guy and and stop him if Kulak only realized that. But he was moving up. He just took a couple steps towards that guy. And meanwhile, Felino sneaks in behind uh, Kulak, takes the pass. And, you know, here's a game where the Oilers make, you know, Zaka and uh, and um, uh, Felino and who was the other goal scorer? Zaka, Felino oh, and... No, no look like you know bossy esposito and brett hall um <clears throat> just by giving them these wide open looks and kulak has been playing uh pretty strong hockey in the last month six weeks he's yeah, really mostly. stepped it up not to the point where the orders aren't looking at acquiring it looks like acquiring a a left second pairing left shot d man um seems to be high on their list again um so, uh, but geez, I just, I just, it, it was a goal that didn't have to be. And it was a, it was a series of small mistakes. And then a big mistake by Kulak, I thought, that led to it. And uh, you can't do that if you're going to beat the Boston Bruins. You can't have those errors. I mean, such a fast game, such a difficult game to play. So, you know, there's that to consider, but... They got it. That's this is why they're in the NHL making the big bucks, including Kulak, you know, mm-hmm. and he's got to make that play. Yeah, I blame a lack of communication between the two there. Uh, Kulak is coming back, preparing as if it's two on one, and then McDavid comes flying back so fast. But as you say, right up the middle of the ice, and he doesn't commit right or left. 
He's coming right up the middle of the ice. And as the puck goes over to Charlie Coyle, who was the playmaker here, uh, McDavid suddenly cut towards Coyle at the exact moment that Kulak suddenly cut towards Coyle. And there was never a, you know, a finger pointed or a shout or say, I'll take him, you know, you take that guy. I mean, you know, I'm sure you do this in your beer league hockey that when you're facing a two on two, you talk to your partner. No, no? we don't. No. Oh, okay. No. Bruce, anyway, you're asking a lot of beer league hockey players. Yeah, okay. Anyway, there, there was no, uh, uh, there was, there didn't seem to, there certainly was no sign language of the pointing type that you often see on these sort of plays where you, you're not outnumbered, but you're kind of in, you're not really lined up with them. And, you know, the guy, guys coming at you do a crossover or something, and you got to make sure you don't both go to the same, well, they both went to the same guy, bam, in the net. Uh, just like that, bam. Oh, yeah, just like that, bam. <clears throat> Yikes. Not good. And then it's two to one, right? Like, you get off to this great start, you get the early lead, and you, now you're down two to one. Good work. It's. I mean, they're way more disappointed than we are, I'm sure. But uh, we're disappointed. Bruce, uh, what's your number? Yeah, well, I got two numbers tonight, David, and but they're from the same column. And they are six minutes and four seconds and 19 minutes and 45 seconds. And this is the time on ice afforded to Yessa Pugliarvi and Kyler Yamamoto in this game. And I saw Pugliarvi pretty good in uh in the little tiny bit of the game that he played, he had two shots, two hits, uh, takeaway in six minutes. And he had one terrific sequence where he jumped on a loose puck in the slot, fired a zinger of a shot that you probably call a grade A, but not a five alarm because it wasn't close. But he tested Swayman. And then he was all over the rebound, forced Boston behind the net. And Boston came out. Uh, the other side and came back up the ice and it was a developing three on two and they cr- tried to cross ice pass and who's busting his butt on the back check but yes the picks off the pass immediately chips it back north and all of a sudden the Oilers are going the other way on a two on two i'm thinking geez that's a heck of a nice shift i hope the coach noticed well apparently he didn't because uh yes i got six minutes in this game and uh yamamoto got a few ticks below 20. And it's not because of power play or penalty kill time, because there wasn't much of that. Uh, Yamamoto got a, you know, under a minute on each unit, but uh, and yes, of course, got nothing at all. Uh, and I mean, if you're going to go with this 11-7, I thought the whole idea was to rotate guys through the fourth line and get them involved in the game, and not leave them rotten on the bench. For I mean, Derek Ryan, he played six minutes and 32 seconds in this game. And he's been a good contributing depth forward for Oilers for weeks. He's been playing really well. And they, uh, coaching just took him right out of the game, both these guys. And I just don't understand it. And it, it just leaves me scratching my head about the decision-making process of the head coach in terms of allotment of ice time. And, and from this particular game, the way they were going, which Yamamoto had a penalty, he missed those two shots, he played with energy, did some good stuff. Uh, three shots, two hits. So, he, you know, and three times the ice time, he got one more shot than Pogliarvi. Same number of hits and one fewer uh, takeaway and one more giveaway and a penalty. And anyway, it's I, I'm baffled a little bit about, about 
I mean, Pugliarvi, I mean, he's been criticized and with good reason for much of the season. But this last number of games, he's been good. And it just doesn't seem to be resulting in, in much in the way of increased opportunity at all. Mm-hmm. They could have taken some ice from Hyman. Like, he, yeah. he his legs were not gone. Mm-hmm. You know, early in the second period, if you had benched Hyman for a couple of shifts, put out Pugliarvi. That would have sent a message because because Hyman he usually is a hustling hockey player, but he just wasn't in this game for some reason. He just wasn't effective. He got a little had a couple of good shifts in the third, yeah. But the first two periods he got nothing done in a game. You know his game, his kind of game, gritty game for veterans. Nuge didn't get yeah. a lot done, but at least like Nuge was really digging in. <clears throat> Can't say the same about Hyman, so I wouldn't mind seeing Pulleyarvi get a get a few shifts there. I agree with you, Bruce. That was. Um, you know, now Yamamoto played a lot. I don't think they're showcasing him, but his name has come up in this latest trade room mm-hmm. with Matthias Ekholm. So we'll see what happens there. Um, <clears throat> we'll see what happens there. I mean, um, Ek, we can talk about this. We'll talk about this in a second. Sure. Um, Bruce, my number is um, is five, and that's the five block shots that. Vincent DeHarnay had on David Pasternak in the third period, including four of them in 34 seconds on in Boston's power play. DeHarnay is a great defensive hockey player. Well, that's too much to say. In the brief time that I've seen him, in the small sample size that I've seen Vincent DeHarnay, he's coming across as a great defensive hockey player, or at least a very good one. He hits, he plays his position, he blocks shots, he takes people out in front of the net. He's exactly what the Oilers needed in terms of a penalty-killing player. And <clears throat> I'm starting to think I'd like to see him every third shift. He um, he's a, he just comes across as a solid hockey player. He's like a six foot seven Chris Russell out there, <laughs> giving everything he's got. And um, he got clearly he got hurt on a couple of those shot blocks, but he's, he just keeps doing it and doing it and doing it. And some of those shot blocks, you know, Pasternak can fire the puck. <clears throat> and he just got, he just kept getting in the way. Yeah. They have a real find here in Vincent DeHarnay. Um, mm. They're going to have to move out a right shot defenseman this summer if they don't do it before then in a trade to, to give this guy a regular shift next year. He's going to be playing regular. He's going to be the third pairing, if not higher, defenseman on the owners next year from what i've seen so far and again it is a small sample size but it's getting larger bruce it's 16 games now <coughs> and he's plus nine and by our metrics the way we uh track hockey too you know contributions to major contributions to grade a shots for and major mistakes on grade a shots against he's every bit as good as a plus nine goals uh for differential um he's 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 really shutting down the opposing team in a way, in a way that we haven't seen from an owner's D-man this year, honestly. So good for him. This year for a while, really. Uh, well, anyway, Larson and Russell. Larson, I guess, yeah. Yeah, yeah, fair with Russell. But uh, not in the same style, no. uh, for sure. And uh, yeah, two hits and five block shots for uh, Vincent tonight. And after those four block shots, the one thing he did was he blew his cool a little bit. After the fourth block shot, and he's, I'm sure his hand is stinging and probably his foot is sore by then. And and Matthias Janmark tried to clear the zone and he got 
let's say mugged by some Bruin. I don't know if there any particular rule was broken. Certainly there was no rules against Boston mugging Oilers in this game, uh, which they did very effectively. I mean, hats off to them that they uh, they really play a smothering defense. But Janmark was unable to clear that puck and it went back into the zone to Pasternak again and DeHarney just wound up and hacked him on the back, which is <laughs> when they're already a man short. Yeah, not the best With idea. Two and a half minutes to go. That, uh, <coughs> you'd think that would end their last chance, but in the end, they got a couple of chances on that three on five. But the uh, Harney's first shift was uh, the play where he and Nurse couldn't get the puck cleared, and his last shift That's was true. that. But in That's between true. times, he blocked all those shots. And, you know, he's. I agree with you that he's a. He's a rising young player, and he's not that young. And I think for that reason, he's maturing right into the NHL pretty quickly. He's he's seen his hockey. He's maybe getting used a little bit to the higher speed and skill at this level, but uh, he sure seems to be in the right place a lot. You know, it's interesting, Bruce, because people were hankering after a couple of physical players, like a big physical defenseman and a mm-hmm. physical forward. Mm-hmm. And it seems like Costin and DeHarney have really answered mm-hmm. the bell in in that regard they they both costa can play a bit of hockey um he's very aggressive deharney the same thing so um that <clears throat> that need is really being met which i think really does leave it open for the orders to you know i, I think if they're going to make a trade they need what they should be looking for is a is a top six forward or a top four d-man just to really, you know, go for it. The West is wide open. All these teams are, are just coin flip who's going to win this series. And with McDavid and Drysaddle, you know, who knows what's going to happen. Of course, the Oilers' goaltending is another thing. You know, and that the play of the Oilers might, might want to acquire as a goalie. Like, I'm not even ruling that out. I, you never hear that mentioned. But the way that um, Campbell's playing, um, you can't count on him in the playoffs at this point. And if they could trade for a goalie, like, I don't know if uh, Eunice Corposalo is available or someone like that. So it's unlikely that they could get Mm -hmm. a goalie. I'll say that, but I wouldn't mind them. You know, so the player that they're mentioning is Matthias Ekholm. And I want to get your view on it. Just quickly, my view is he's 33 in a few months. He earns 6.5 million a year for the next three years. He is a very good player right now. But he's playing a minute less a game uh, in Nashville. His scoring's down a bit. His time on ice is down a bit. I'm a little bit <clears throat> worried about a player being past his best before date. At the same time, um, he's still um, a vital player this year. He's a top four D-man in the NHL. Is That's what his time on ice and points per 60 suggest. Mm-hmm. What do you think? I mean... What's your take on him, Bruce? Yeah, he's been a 23-and-a-half-minute defenseman for Nashville for years on end. Holy moly. He's down a bit this year. This year he's down to 21-44, Bum. Yeah. And his his scoring is down, as you say, uh, not that much, but about a little. Like, he's not a big scorer, and I don't think he's uh, everything – he does is on the power or on even strength at this point in his career. They got Josie, of course, uh, running the show on the power play there. He, he does uh, get on the power play. He gets about a minute and a half a game. Yeah, yeah. Well, he doesn't get any points there. Let's put it that way. <laughs> no. Three assists. Okay, there you go. Anyway, uh, I've always liked him as a player. 
Uh, the six and a quarter I find scary at three years, you know. And the trouble with six and a quarter is I mean, the Oilers are in this, uh, uh, people are going to hate me now. They're in this situation where this has to be dollar in, dollar out. <clears throat> and I will concede that it's possible to buy down the dollars coming in uh, for the dollars that are going out. But when that those dollars being bought down or have term associated <coughs> with them, that is not easily done. And it's very, very difficult to get a, a, a third team involved in buying down any contract that isn't, you know, just a rental expiring at the end of the season. Where they know they got the cap rim, room there. They know it's only a few bucks. They got a free draft pick out of it. Well, if you're buying down three years on uh, Matthias Ekholm or four years on Eric Carlson and you're a third-party team, you're basically saying, give me your dead cap for four years. And any GM worth his salt isn't going to be, I mean, Arizona might do it, but any other team is going to say, well, we're going to be contending before then. We're going to need that cap room for ourselves. We can't be trading that. And so you have to buy it down from the original team. And maybe in his case, but if you can't, uh, $6.25 million, uh, that's two of the $3 million class players, which are really the only Oilers in position to be traded. And if you trade two of them for one of him, well, guess what? Now you got a 19-man roster, so it's it's a problem. They got they got a they got a I mean they got a 20-man roster. They're basically capped out. I think they got 500 grand now just because of the transactions of Holloway and and so on when uh, Yamamoto came back, but they haven't got enough cap space for a 21st player. So they're you know they've got. Not only do they have to do basically dollar in, dollar out, but they also have to do player in, player out. They can't be doing a two for one. And if you've got an expensive player, well, they, they haven't got enough cap to trade because all of their guys over $5 million, all of them are on no movement clauses and they're core players that are the actual identity of the team. I mean, who are you going to trade? Connor McDavid, Darnell Nurse? Don't answer that. Leon Dreisaitl? Uh, Zach Hyman, Ryan Nugent Hopkins, Evander Kane. I mean, these are the Edmonton Oilers. They're big five uh, forwards, stud defensemen. There's no way they can trade Jack Campbell, who has a no-trade contract. And Tyson Berry, I mean, the only way I could see them trading him is would be in an Eric Carlson trade, where you've got his replacement coming in that's going to play the first power play and play the offensive minutes at right D. Otherwise, you trade Tyson Barry just to make room for a Matthias Ekholm. Well, now who's running your power play? And what guarantee do you have that that power play is going to keep ticking along at 32%? Uh, so I don't see them trading Barry on, except very explicit circumstances. So now you're down to your $3 million guys, and there's five of them. There's Yamamoto, Pugliarvi, Fogel, CC, and Kulak. And if you're getting... Yanmark, well, you trade two of them back, and all you're doing is breaking even. And like I say, you've got a 19-man roster. If, on the other hand, you go for Chikrin and 4.6 million, maybe you ask uh, uh, Arizona to include uh, uh, the big forward, Bukestad, in a two-for-two two and say, you guys have your pick off of the $3 million list. You can have one defenseman or you can and one forward or two forwards. You just can't take both defensemen. You choose. And you send us these guys, and then we'll haggle over what the, you know, what the what the plus 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 is. But from the NHL roster, such a trade would basically be five and a half to six million dollars out, five and a half million dollars in, and you can actually do it, stay under the cap, and keep your 20-man roster. 
So, so you think the chicken deal makes more sense than Hancock? Uh, well, they, unless there's retention. But like I say, Nashville, you think you're going to get Nashville? Maybe they retain 25% on uh, Ekholm and get him down to 4.6. And you try and then structure the same kind of a trade where you get a useful second guy to come back and you trade them two mid-level contracts. Bruce, I could see Barry going for Ekholm. Mm-hmm. I think it would be a risky move for the Oilers. Yeah. But it's... A, <clears throat> It makes a certain amount of sense. I think one of the things about Ekholm is he's not, I don't think he lives up to his contract. And I think that might be generally accepted. So when you're training for him, you don't have to give up as much just to get him because he presents a risk and an overpay for the next three seasons. Mm -hmm. That's, that's gotta be part of the thinking of what happens. So the price for Ekholm, maybe himself, he's not even that high because Nashville needs to rebuild. They got to move them out. They, they want to probably move out the salary. They want to get something, a future player in return. The expensive thing with Ekholm from the Oilers' perspective will be the cap space. So if they can get Nashville to eat like, you know, 1.5 to $2 million a year, that's what's going to cost them a first round draft pick. So, you know, the, you know, the price could be um, Tyson Berry and let's say a Reed Schaefer or the Oilers' first pick this year for, for Ekholm. And um, now that's a risky move because Tyson Berry is a decent player at even strength. He's okay. He's pretty. He's not bad, and he's outstanding on the <coughs> on the power play. And Bouchard, as much as I like Evan Bouchard, he's not showing it this year. Maybe that's maybe he would step up and um, on the power play. I mean, he just he just doesn't look that sharp. Um, running the power play this this season, his shot is not getting through this year for some reason, and um, so <clears throat> risky move. But you got to you're gonna have to take a risk if you're gonna win the Stanley Cup. I don't see the orders making that trade. And in terms of, and I want to make this clear again because it needs to be said often. When I'm talking about these trades for players and other teams, we put in a lot of work at the Cult of Hockey to properly what we see is properly evaluate the Edmonton Oilers players. We do video review. We discuss the scoring chances. We keep track of it. We keep careful notes. We look at the key plays repeatedly, trying to figure out what happened, who did what. We do not do that. I don't do that on the for players on opposing teams. Because I do that on the Oilers, I have a certain amount of confidence in our system for rating the right. Oilers players. I don't have any confidence in my take on Matthias Ekholm this year. I'm not a credible person in terms of saying what his real value is because I haven't put in that that kind of time which NHL teams and scouts do, but other people talking about these trades on the internet, you can be almost rest assured they don't do. So I just, I just you have to be wary. Like, hopefully the Oilers have a really good assessment of Matthias Ekholm. Um, John Shannon was <coughs> saying to on Oilers now he sees other than Carlson, Ekholm the the you know the top defenseman on the market, and I just I, maybe. Like, that's possible, but I just wonder. Like, I don't know that, and I don't think you can tell from his stats necessarily. Maybe maybe his scoring stats are artificially low, that he's made a lot of really good plays, and they just haven't end up, ended up as goals. That's what it's like with Bouchard. Forwards? <laughs> yeah, that's what it's like with Bouchard this year at even strength. Bouchard's been involved in a lot of grade-A uh, scoring chances at even strength. He's orchestrated a lot with his passing, but they haven't gone in. This could happen to a player. So, again, I just don't know. I can't say what kind of value he really has, but I don't know. Um, 
I don't know if that's the right move or not. I, I mean, I really like Philip Broberg. And, um, you know, one of the other options is that Brett Kulak goes, Bruce. Yeah. If you're trading, if you're trading, trading for dollar class uh, players, if yes. you're trading for a, a defenseman who's got three more years on his deal, you'd want to move out Brett Kulak, I think. And, um, <clears throat> and maybe, maybe then Yamamoto, you know, they can, they can take their pick plus a first round draft pick for the, for the salary retention. So, um, and maybe something more, I don't know, someone like a second pick. I don't know what it would take to get Nashville to budge. They cert- certainly drove a hard bargain when they drove, traded five goal score. What is it? Travis Janot to, uh, to Tampa. Tampa. <clears throat> I'm not criticizing though. Tanner Janot. I'm not criticizing mm-hmm. the deal. Cause I, I you know, um, Tampa maybe, knows what they want and they're prepared to overpay for it. They've got a pretty good record the last few years. So I'll just, I'll just, uh, Hold my fire on that one, I'd say. Well, they brought in Barkley, Goodrow, and um, Buddy in Calgary now, Blake Coleman, uh, as inexpensive depth forwards when they won their two cups because they both had a year of term left. And last year they brought in Hagel from Chicago and Nick Paul from Ottawa. That was a terrific pickup for them, and they went deep in the playoffs. This year they're bringing in Tanner Janot, and what they just seems to be looking for is hard men to play at the bottom of their roster to make every line of theirs really tough to play against and it's worked so i think they way overpaid for Genoa. i just i mean so the odd thing is Genoa himself is an undrafted player but he got traded for five draft picks one two three four five rounds one in each of the first five rounds spread out over three years and also a pretty good uh uh, long-term prospect for the Bolts has never quite been able to cut into their defense, but might really have a chance in Nashville, the actual player they got back, which was, uh, what's the kid's name? He's the son of a former NHL. Foot? Cal yes, Foot, is it? Yes, yes, Cal Foot, uh, Adam Foot's kid. And, and uh, he just he's never quite broken through, but that's pretty been a pretty tough defense over the years. So even there, so they got essentially six assets for one. And the one is going to be his contract's expiring at the end of the year, and they have obviously RFA rights, but $800,000 contracts of beauty for this player, and that's <coughs> they're focused on. We've got to fit him under the cap. We need some guy near the minimum who can really play, and they picked him and they paid for him. You know who's hurting right now is um, the Ottawa Senators, thinking, why do we give up Nick Paul for... Yeah. A fourth round draft pick and Matthew Joseph. Um, well, Joseph's what we, uh, okay, but oh, he's got 13, 13 points in 40 games this year. He did have 12 points in 11 games when he went to the Senators last year, Matthew Joseph. But um, <clears throat> yeah, they're thinking, man, we could have got that. I mean, it is a it is an amazing amount of picks. The one thing about um, you know is he does have a low amount of goals this year, but he's had a really low shooting percentage. So you might be able to get him on a value contract next year. And this might be, mm-hmm. Tampa may have this in mind in, in that yeah. he's, they are, he's an RFA. And it's not just this year they're trading for him. They're going right. to get a player they can probably sign for a fairly low amount of money next season as well. Um, oh, who, who scored, I think, like 22 or 23 goals the year before when he shot mm-hmm. about 19%. Mm-hmm. So um, they're looking at, at a guy who probably is going to score about 10 to 15 goals a year and not earn very much money um, next season. And that makes sense for them as well. So that's, I think, another reason for the high price there. 
It's still bizarre. I mean, you can make a pretty good argument that uh, Tampa paid more for the one player than Boston did for the two guys that they got out of uh, Washington that uh, helped beat the Oilers tonight in uh, defenseman Orlov and forward uh, Hathaway. Man, that would have been a beauty ad for the Oilers, those two same two players in a a package. Or then we saw the one today where Toronto got McCabe and, oh, yeah, they also got uh, Sam Lafferty thrown into the same deal. And, oh, yeah, Chicago's going to retain 50%. And, oh, yeah, Chicago's going to wait till 2025 for the first-round draft choice. But the Oilers couldn't even compete on this uh, front because uh, McCabe had a no-trade contact, uh, no-trade clause that he applied to all the Canadian teams except Toronto. And Toronto wound up getting them. But, uh, and then the third one, also Toronto, where they got Ryan O'Reilly, and on the side, they got Nola Cherry thrown into that trade. And so in each case, the teams didn't just trade for one sort of, well, they did trade for one feature player, but they got a second darn good, proven, relatively inexpensive, solid bottom six forward sort of thrown in as part of the deal. And I got to say, Mr. Ken Holland, pay attention. This is your way forward. The only way you can do that is that the, I can see that that you can balance your roster and balance your payroll. If you're going to get a feature player, get a good cheap player and 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 trade back two mid-level players, meaning that list of five three million dollar contracts. It's the only ones the orders can move because if they move a one million dollar guy, they're not gaining anything at all because they're paying whoever replaces them the same amount. And the five million up guys are off limits, as I mentioned before. So the list of guys he can trade is very, very short. And unfortunately, most of those guys have, have had their struggles this year. don't have huge trade value, I don't suppose. So it's a, it, he's, a, he's, he's in a tight space and people are dumping all over the guy. And understand, on one level, I understand because he signed some of these contracts. He signed Jack Campbell, which is a big problem right now. And, you know, but he's uh, I mean he's just dealing with the realities that the top end of his payroll is locked in for years they've all got multi multi years they've all got no move contracts so he's only really dealing from the bottom of the deck and he's got he's got to find some kind of fit like I, I I like the one that I mentioned earlier with Lubstadt uh, uh, would be the second player where you're getting a real good sort of useful player type that the Oilers would need at $900,000. And, and the other guy, you know, you wouldn't need any retention to pull off that trade. You just trade straight up. You guys from this list from the Oilers, for those two guys from Arizona, and it's balanced. And then whatever else that you have to pay is not coming off this year's team. So that's, that's the only sort of logical way. I mean, talking about getting in $10 million players, you can get two teams to retain. And... You're gonna move, you know. Anyway, it's uh, it's uh, kind of frustrating, and I think Holland Holland's taken a beating worse than he deserves at this point. And I would just say this: let's wait until Friday, uh, say 1:30. Let's give him a half hour grease and see what happens when the dust settles, as opposed to dumping on the guy every time some other team makes a trade. Yeah, let's wait till Friday. Yeah, and then we'll get out the baseball bats. Yeah, 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 yeah. the torches and pitch pitchforks, all that stuff, you know. But Friday, 
I don't I don't have strong feelings about the trade market because <clears throat> yeah we'll see what happens I hope they I hope they make a good deal we'll see he's made some good deals I mean he brought in Kane he got Nuge and Hyman on good deals you know it hasn't been a, a total uh, horror show with Ken Holland running the running things so uh, Cody I I like Cody CC as a player I think he's on a, a good contract for his level of play Tyson Berry's been a good signing so. Yeah, Jack Campbell, that's really hurts, but maybe he can still turn it around. God, let's uh, hope he can. Bruce, let's uh, let's leave it there for tonight. Thanks for talking. On to Toronto on Wednesday night. Uh, thanks for listening, everyone. And in the meantime, and in between times, this has been another edition of the Cult of Hockey podcast.